This show is brought to you by Objectivity Squared Wealth Management, helping families strategize, execute, monitor, and communicate their financial decisions. Learn more at objectivitysquared.com. Call to Adventure, hosted by Alex Opolis and John Duckworth, an exploratory conversation about facing the unknown, an opportunity to discuss those pivotal moments that illuminate new paths and reveal deeper purpose and meaning in our lives. Welcome to the 11th episode of Call to Adventure. This is your host, John Duckworth, along with my co-host, Alex Opolis, here in the Ohm Radio studio at the top of the Joseph Floyd Manor in beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. We have the honor and the pleasure of sitting down with Marjorie Wentworth today, a great friend and a truly inspired creative force. She is a nationally recognized poet, author, teacher, and human rights activist. Marjorie has served as South Carolina's Poet Laureate since 2003, promoting reading, writing, and appreciation of poetry throughout the state ever since. She has published many books of poetry, teaches creative writing at the Art Institute of Charleston, and with the Charleston County Schools Engaging Creative Minds program. She has been nominated for the Pushcart Prize five times, the most honored literary project in America. Marjorie was born in Massachusetts, attended Mount Holyoke College and then NYU, and has lived in Charleston since 1989 with her husband Peter and her three sons, Hunter, Oliver, and Taylor. She describes herself as busy, energetic, and passionate, which is an understatement for those of us who know her. <laughs> Marjorie, it's good to have you here. Welcome to the show. Hey, I'm happy to be here. Cool. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious about your childhood uh, in, in Massachusetts. And uh, it seems like in some of the research I did that there was sort of the fragility of life was noticeably present from a young age. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I grew up in a house with a lot of sick people, and I was sick a lot when I was really small. I, I had um, I had a lot of kidney issues and was in the hospital a lot, and so... How know, young? Uh, like three, four, six. Okay. Like, my first full year of school was until second grade. Oh, wow. And um, there really isn't a lot to do back then, so I read and mm. drew a lot. I was yeah. a horrible artist. You know. But, um, you know, in the end, it worked in my favor because I read so much that I was reading, you know, like novels when I was very young. Oh, I mean, wow. just, and it was really, and they used to tell me I was really smart. I wasn't smart. It was just like a survival skill. And then my parents had a lot of health issues. So, yeah, I mean, it impacts you because when you're a kid, that's your reality. You don't really know any different. And um, there was a lot of caregiving. There's a really strong strain of empathy in a lot of your writing. Yeah, sure yeah, it, it teaches from... you a lot. I mean, even now when people are going through things, I mean, it doesn't phase me. I mean, I know what it's like to live in a house with someone who's got cancer or a mother who can't get out of bed or even yeah. for me as a little kid. You know, I have students right now with some of the same issues I had as a small child. And they're like, oh, wow, yeah. you're so sweet. I'm like, well... You know, I almost lost a kidney. And, um, you know, you're not allowed to walk up and down stairs. And there's all these things. And they're like, love talking to me about it because I understand it. So, yeah. um, you know, it, it, there's a, it's like most horrible things. Still, you live through something and you, you learn a lot and it becomes part of who you are. And yeah, absolutely. It can be practical. I know. I remember I had you a, know? a knee surgery um, just, just after I graduated from high school. And I ended up six months sort of bedridden as I was recovering. And I ended up 
producing a series of works in charcoal on paper that was like, it's kind of a pivotal turning point for me as an artist because I just had that time mm. to do that. Right. Uninterrupted, nothing to do. And I just, you know, poured myself into these drawings and I still have them. And, and right. it's a real pivotal moment for me as an yeah, artist. Yeah, you wouldn't want to go through the knee surgery again. No, but, but I wouldn't turn it, turn it back in time right. and take it away. So you, you said, I think, empathy, the human element, and that intense connection to people, that really is my mother. Um, in the end, it's what we do, not what we say. Um, and uh, so your mother played a big role in, in your Yeah, life. and now she's here and we're taking care of her. Right. Uh, but she was a real people person and very sensitive and very, um, you know, just very oriented to, you know, she always knew the neighbors and what was going on. And she was one of those moms who was there at everything we did mm-hmm. when she could be. And... Um, you know, so that when we had issues in our, you know, when my dad died and my mom had just had surgery, I mean, our town took care of us. How old were you when I mean, I can't, it was unbelievable, but she knew everybody. I was in ninth grade. Wow. Okay. And she wasn't really that well. She'd had some kind of surgery, like major back surgery, and she couldn't do it. So everyone, you know, really um, made sure everything was okay for our family. And I think a lot of that was because my mom knew everybody and it was a small town. My grandparents, my dad's parents also lived lived in the town. Well, I I know you've said also uh, about poetry being such a great vehicle for dealing with complex and overwhelming emotions. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that with regards to your father passing away, is that that was really the birth of your sort of real interest in being in writing poetry. Yeah, and you find that with poets in particular. There's, you know, it's not a very happy group collectively, you know, and people (laughs) often have, the the catalyst is often a tragedy. Okay. Or or something um, like that. And, And, you know, I think, most kids in junior high age, a lot of kids really start writing then. It becomes an outlet. And, um, you know, it's a great way to process mm. overwhelming things. I mean, I wasn't yeah. going to go to school and talk about this stuff. I yeah. was, you know, I wanted yeah. to talk about the music and Ian McDonald or whoever I liked at the time and my shoes <laughs> and, you know, whatever. You, you know, I mean, so it was a private thing, but it was uh, really helped me. And my dad was very well educated and loved literature. So I'd read a lot of poetry and poetry oh, okay. was like available to me, which a lot of people don't necessarily get an exposure to, except for like Dr. Seuss and whatever you get in school, right. which is pretty alienating, generally speaking. So uh, I, I had, I was you know, had read a lot of poetry. We heard poetry in our house, you Speaking know. Speaking of reading poetry, would you be willing to read and uh, one about your father? The, um, the sure. pine, um, pine oh, pitch? Oh, the one about Uncle Jer- Crazy Uncle Jerry. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, if you knew him. <laughs> yeah, and, and this was um, an interesting poem. Um, you know, sometimes you don't know you remember something. Yeah, right. And... Um, you know, you remember one little detail. I'm sure you find this with mm-hmm. painting. And then you think about it as an adult. Oh, my God, what that took for him to, yeah. you know. So it was that I, kind I, of... I, that's what, that when was my feeling. Recently. Well, That, that was know, my takeaway the... when I read this poem for the first time was that one detail carries with it so much yeah. meaning. Right. And it's, you know, thinking about things as an adult. And it's also, I want to mention, it's written in this form that I really like. Uh-huh. I think I've talked to you about it before. It's this Welsh form that uses kind of seven syllables in a line. 
And especially when you're yeah. using a narrative, telling a narrative, it can be sort of like a, just a chopped up story. Um, and it really helps contain it. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And it's very... Gives it, it a pace and a rhythm. And, and yeah, yeah. It, 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 you know, I could talk about that for a long time. You don't want me to. But um, I use that and I, I like that form. Okay. Pine pitch. Clustered around the edges of my father's open grave, the grown-ups lean into one another like bunches of crows pressing their pale, wet faces against the emptiness of the slate sky gathering in the late winter wind. The flapping minister's robes sound like sails unfurling beside the coffin. It is as if this man carries the sea inside of him, the way my father did. Pine boughs cover the coffin. Arranged like flowers from one end of the other, they fill the air with Christmas smells. I think of my uncle climbing at dusk through falling snow to do the one thing he could still do for this man he loved like a brother. I consider the tenderness and courage it must have taken to tear the branches one by one from the mountainside, and how, when his arms were full of pine, he ran stumbling down the trail he had made alone through the woods, his hands covered in dark patches of pitch that stayed on his skin for days. So beautiful. Well, it, the, yeah. the one detail, it's my... Um, he he was this uncle is married to one of my mother's sisters okay and which makes it even more in a way that he was so close to him and they were so different you know oh really my uncle jerry was a nat was on the us ski team he was a ski jumper and then he got my aunt jane pregnant when they were young and you know, never went to college, became a state trooper. And my dad, you know, went to Harvard on the GI Bill and studied English literature. I mean, they, and yet they were just, they loved each other. Really? And my, my, I think my dad's favorite thing was to put on a badge and go out with my Uncle Jerry in Maine and chase after crazy people. But yeah, they were really <laughs> close. And then um, that child that my Aunt Jane was pregnant with was born five days after me. So she's like a sister oh, and our okay. family. So we have very different, okay. you know, and she's a hairdresser yeah. and, you know, I mean, we have very different lives, but yeah. we're all really close and that's a good thing about family. Mar Marjorie, I lost a, a parent at a young age and, and amongst many things, he was a musician. Oh. And I always had a... Inhibitions when it came to music and dance in particular. And I found that after his passing, dance and music became a way in which I really communicated with him. Or it that, made that connection. Yeah. Sure. Was that, was that, was that a path in, in terms of your poetry and your communicating with your, your Well, not, dad? probably not literal, mm. but I know my, I only have one sibling and I know my brother does things like he, he, my dad loved mountain climbing and my, my brother, you know, I know when he does that, when he's up, you know, he'll send me pictures, you know, from the top of Mount Washington or something. And I know he's channeling that. Yeah, right. Um, and for me, mm. sure, sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think so. Uh, he would have gotten such a kick out of it, right. you know. Um, and certainly, like, Robert Frost was like a household, right. you know, name in our house. And we were raised on that. And, you know, I, I really think it's, it's just the way it happened. But sure, yeah. it is a way to kind of communicate. Well, s switching gears a little bit and coming all the way down to Charleston, how does a girl from Massachusetts become the South Carolina Poet Laureate. A jock from Massachusetts. A jock yeah, from Massachusetts, yeah. right. Um, How did that happen? <clears throat> well, it's interesting because, you know, we moved here in 89, right before Hurricane Hugo. Good timing. Bought a house for, very affordable house on Sullivan's Island, which is hard to believe. And of course it was, you know, it wasn't completely destroyed. We moved in a year later, but virtually destroyed. And um, the impact on my poetry was 
profound. And I was really trying to write about this place and saw things being rebuilt and the natural world became a big part of my poetry and the way mm. I sort of described what happened. And then I began to get those poems published and Mary Edna Fraser, the artist, oh, yeah. um, heard me do a reading and we began to collaborate. So those poems became sort of m most of my first book. And, um, and you knew the Sanfords from time in New York? From no, previously? we no. met them. Okay. They had moved here, and they were like this other young couple who'd moved here from New York City. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay, so that was the connection. Um, okay. And then the story is that Mark Sanford becomes governor, and they have a meeting, like you're going to have an inauguration, and he, they have a packet of information. Here's what has to happen. And they said, well, we have to have the poet laureate read a poem, and they went off mm. and discovered that she had died a few years before and had never been replaced. And some really savvy poets, mm. I've heard the story from a number of people, sent in poems, like I would, you know, most of them were political and weren't really appropriate. And he looked up and said, you know, what about Marjorie Wentworth? She writes those nature poems. I mean, that's something we all feel good about. And, yeah, right. okay. you know, he, you know, politics aside, he, he's, you know, always was someone that said, you know, you destroy the environment here. You get nothing for the, yeah. you know, that's the thing we have here. So um, that's how it started. He grew up in the outdoors, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so you know, very nature-oriented. Yeah. And um, so I was asked to do the poem. I had like a week to do it, um, but I was able to do it, and I had a really good time. Yeah. You know, it was like quite interesting experience and never really thought about it. And then like six months later, I was appointed. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, and... Uh, wow. So, and I'm sure that must have coincided with your, you know, then sort of deep dive into a bit of a responsibility to find out more about this place that you now call home. And, and yeah, know, it changed it. It really changed everything. I mean, yeah. it's a very, you know, I think I got a $1,500 stipend. I mean, it's, you know, but it comes with a lot of responsibility. Yeah. It's a huge honor. And, um, you know, there's no other. Um, there, it's not like there's a music laureate and art laureate no. and a theater yeah. So I really felt like that's part of what your responsibility is too, is just to make sure that the government understands the needs of the arts community, especially in a place like South Carolina, the value of arts education. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not just about poetry, although poetry is particularly marginalized. I know we're going to talk about that later. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so certainly it's about trying to find ways to expand the audience and, 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 you know, most of, well, I think everything that I presented like poetry out loud, which was a new national endowment for the arts program for high school students where they would recite poems. Okay. Um, you know, I, the governor's office was like, sure, we're all about whatever you need, we'll give awards or whatever. And they were very supportive of that. And now it's a huge thing across the state of South Carolina. I mean, lots of people helped implement that in the Arts Commission and various people, but um, that was like a big project I, I helped bring in. And so things like that, and um, generally they were very supportive of yeah. the arts. Yeah. The role of the art, uh, of a poet and the responsibility it carries, it's, uh, it's a heavy one. And uh, I, I'm looking forward to having that conversation after we... Uh, Tune yeah, to a little Miles Davis, John. Absolutely. Well, I remember you were telling me that uh, you know, you're as an educator that you tell your students that if you don't have a warm cat on your lap and Miles Davis playing in the background, they're probably not going to get a good grade, right? They do not want me grading their English comp essays. So I was sitting around, of course, <laughs> reading your poetry and listening to Miles Davis, and it's a really good combination. So oh, let's, let's let's hear some Miles Davis, Blue and Green, and we've asked Marjorie, if you would, to read one of your poems over top. This one's called Nothing Can Contain You. 
Not the wreath woven from fresh flowers, nor the photograph it rings. Not the calm smile at the center. Not the messages inscribed by the ones who loved you most. Not your initials, nor the dates marked in black lettering across the white cross, planted behind the guardrail at the edge of a Georgia highway, the one perpetually filling with sunlight. But birds, there should be birds, small and many, birds that have just come from the sea, which can't be far. There should be one for each year. They should descend in a rush and surprise and smother the small trees growing in a line beyond the roadside memorial. And they should be white. And from a distance, it would look like a line of crosses trembling beneath a sky full of sadness, full of song. I'm interested in the in the weight of uh, the responsibilities with being a poet. And I, in reading, I was I came across this. It said, few grasp how important to see that the time traveling conversation of literature means that Sappho, or the late Tang Dynasty poets, or Derek Walcott, have as much to say to us as the internet, TV, newspapers, social media. In fact, poetry has a whole lot more to say than the news, and generally, lots more than Facebook. It is news that stays news, and it ups the ante of human perception. It's taken me a long, long time to understand what Percy Shelley meant when he said, poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world, but at last I think I do. Did I write that? No, you know what? This was... Uh, Carol Musk Dukes. Oh, Carol Musk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know her from California, right? Yeah, yeah. No, but I've certainly... Those quotes are familiar, and yeah. I like Sappho and Derek Walcott in one sentence. <laughs> <laughs> With a art form that requires uh, a lot of time to digest for the reader, um, h- how do you how do you find that in today's society, which that seems to you be an oxymoron? S- right, you know? it's like going to yoga or something. You got to mm. slow down. Yeah, right. You got to be still. Uh, you know, and I I think that you know I don't know what we're all looking for on the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I teach college and, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of scary mm. to watch. <laughs> and um, I, I do think that when people find poetry or it finds them, they, they're always surprised by the wisdom in it or mm. the way they, it, everything makes sense in that poem and how did I not know? That? I mean, I have a, a very good friend from home I read in Salem Mass from that area and one of my friends brought her mom her mom you know know me knew me growing up and she came up to me I'll never forget Mrs. DiGiulio and she said Hmm. well that was sure more interesting than watching television all night but it it's I thought you know everybody would say that if they had a reason to go to a poetry reading or read a poetry book but it's it's been pushed out of their lives so I think um, that this what what that essay is talking about is this this interesting um, you know there's a certain amount of knowledge but also this connection mm. when then there's this intimacy you know after 9-11 everybody was reading poetry that Pablo Neruda poem Keeping mm-hmm. Quiet that John and I were talking about yeah. uh, last night or this morning um, and you know one of the things that our poet laureate at the time Billy Collins said he goes you know 
when you have a tragedy, you don't say, oh, I think I'll go try to figure that out by going to the ballet or something. Mm-hmm. You, you look to poetry because you know there's people who've written about something like this and comprehended it and found language for it. And that's that, it, there's a kind of connection, there's a that, connection the, right, that people look for. Yeah. And, you know, and that's a whole other subject, but in a time of crisis, poetry is everywhere. So yeah. what is that? Uh, so I think to have have it be part of your daily, you know, a resource on a daily daily basis or part of your life is it kind of feeds your soul, helps you understand yourself better, helps you not feel so alone or disconnected. And yet for most people, it's not, it, it isn't. I thought it beautiful. It, She's, she yeah. went on to say, Carol Dukes, the poet laureate of California, it creates metaphors Linking unlike things, spinning analogies, spinning insights, remaking the world. Um, yeah, like the world is, you know, in a poem, all these metaphors and thoughts come together in a way and they, they make complete sense in that poem. And it's almost like another reality. Mm-hmm. If you pull them out separately, they may, okay, so there's a butterfly, big deal. But in the poem, it, it, it can have a huge meaning that it wouldn't yeah. have outside of the poem. And there's something intellectually that's like really satisfying when you experience that, just like a painting, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's really difficult to, to pin down in an explanation how that works, but it really works. And I, right. But I find that when I read poetry, that, that there's a certain mindset that I need to be in in order to fully appreciate it. And it's that slowing down to stillness, a bit of tranquility, a bit of a pause that allows for that magic to happen. And, you know, particularly the ones, you know, even you know, the shorter ones sometimes require more time. Right. Because <laughs> right. Uh, they're loaded with so much. Right, that, like, like Coleman's translations of Rumi. I oh, mean, yeah. There can be three or four yeah. lines and you read it and you're like... Oh you know, the top of your head comes off, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. But um, the other thing is that um, there's so much poetry from the ancient poetry like Sappho to contemporary poetry that, I mean, there's definitely something for everyone if they want to look for it. And, you know, not... One of the other... The biggest... One of the biggest problems is the way it's taught, Mm. So people get afraid of it. I mean, even teachers are like, I don't know how to teach it. I'm so afraid of what if I don't understand it's it? It's too abstract. Well, they're just afraid they don't understand it or something. And what I always say, to, to my, especially to my creative writing students, or even just my students who are studying literature with me, think of it like a dream. You know, you, you wake up and you have a dream and part of it literally makes sense, right? You know, it's about, you know, it all takes place in a room that's familiar, but everybody in it is from another place, you know. So part of it really makes sense, and part of it doesn't. But you still feel it and experience it, and it can be really a yeah. Really, how does it make you feel? It's okay if part of it doesn't make sense. Right. I mean, I think you know, as long as you mm. you know, and I think if you can think about it that way, it helps you experience it. You know, focus on how it makes you feel, or the parts yeah. that you relate to, or what it, you know, the memories it. It's Instead a good place. Of, it's like, a good place to get comfortable with because yeah. the world doesn't always make sense, right. and I think he that's what's so nice about poetry is that you don't yeah. need to dissect it line by line. It's just a, a matter of, of you know, at the and once you've read the last line, what sort of a feeling does it leave right. you? with? What does it remind you uh, of? And it'll be different about... for for right. so many different people. Um, I, I I love the Bob Dylan quote as he talks about being the holder of the light bulb. And, oh, and I don't know that one. <laughs> um, well. Uh, 
it's this idea that 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 there's this sort of shining a light on the unknown, but that there's so oh, much yeah. uh-huh. that is in front of us all the time that we're not really noticing. Well, a lot of it is just paying attention. Paying attention, and, yeah. And, and, there's a and looking aspect. at right, looking at the detail and and using all your senses mm-hmm. and um, which you have to do when you're creating anything, I think. And and yet a lot of a poet poets have often been viewed as outsiders, right? I mean, sort of sure. activists. I, I, in doing the research, I was amazed when you think about Plato, you think of such an intellectual, and, and yet he exiled poets. Well, I mean, um, right now, I mean, there's two poets who just were sentenced in Iran, and, you know, I mm. mean, it, it's, 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 you know, um, um, often poetry kind of tells the truth about something that maybe an authority doesn't like and, and um, you know there, there is this right. feeling of this outside looking in sometimes mm-hmm. I think that's what you're talking about but um, well and absolutely when you talk about that it makes me think of uh, of course your, your recent poem One River One Boat and, and speaking truths that maybe people aren't ready to deal with and I find that so amazing that you talk about the Confederate flag in that poem uh, six months prior to right. the fact that it comes down and nobody could have no, no one could have. Well, it's interesting. I, I got an email about a month ago from Alison Bechtel, who wrote Fun Home. I don't, you know, when mm-hmm. it was, when it was assigned at the college, there was this big controversy right. about it. And, okay. And she, and it, then they turned it into a Broadway play. She just won like 12 Tonys or something. But she sent me this email. She'd read uh, One River and she said, you'd think they'd learn. <laughs> Best thing that could happen is that they ban it, right? You, you know, right. It like shines right. a light on something. And, yeah, and of absolutely. course, I was thrilled that she sent me this email. I was like, yes. Because um, I really admire her. I love, love Fun Home. It's one of my favorite books. But mm. uh, it's a graphic novel. Okay. I suggest okay. you read oh, yeah. it. All right. You, All right. It's autobiographical. It'll go on. It'll, it's on the um, reading list. But it was interesting when I was writing One River, One Boat, you know, I'd done inaugural poems and was already a poet in the natural of the natural world and thought, well, you know, that's you know, something we can all celebrate, but I, yeah. I kind of felt there's something about last year or this year, we're still in 2015, I'd be ready to have it over, right, yeah. in Charleston, and um, I was thinking, there's just things that have to be, we have to think about, we have to just yeah. kind of stop and think, but I was very respectful and very careful, and I thought they'd vet it, maybe, and there would, you know, I was certainly willing to have a conversation, but they didn't want to have a conversation. So. Well, it reminded me of, of our conversation with Jeremy Rivers, and, and he talks about Bernie Glassman and bearing witness, and that that poem just had that quality to it of just bearing witness, you know, right. and, and just looking at the truths that. Jeremy that Rutledge? Rutledge? Jeremy Rutledge. Jeremy Rutledge. Yeah. You mixing up? Oh my God. What did I say? Yeah, okay. Did I say Jeremy so Wentworth? They are let me, brothers. <laughs> let me just say about my friends, Jeremy Rutledge and Nelson Rivers, there's like a That's little right. romance yeah. going on there. there so is. that is yeah. just very funny, and that I want to be sure sure to tell them both about yeah. okay. well <laughs> I, I love I, it I'd like I'd love to get into the uh, the poem uh, and the inaugural and, and it being left out and uh, let's cut to uh, another one of your favorite poets um, Eddie Vedder and his uh, oh, I love Eddie beautiful Vedder. song Ren, uh, called uh, Society Until you have it all, you won't be free 
without me When you want more than you have You think you need And when you think more than you want Your thoughts begin to bleed I think I need to find a bigger place Cause when you have more than you think You need more space Eddie Vedder from Into the Wild, uh, and such a great uh, commentary on, on on culture and and our society that we live in. And as is particularly pertains to our world in South Carolina, this poem you wrote, "One One River, One Boat." And after it was not included in the inaugural um, address, I know that James Clyburn um, read the poem into the congressional record, adding that. We have seen many instances of arbitrary actions against the powerless and by the powerful when words and actions threaten their comfort levels. Such actions should not be. So in honor of that sentiment, can we have you read that poem for us today? Sure. Sure. One River, One Boat. Uh, I, just, I dedicated it to uh, Walter Scott. Okay. In April, I was asked to read it at a press conference, and I 
thought, wow, it doesn't have a dedication. And huh. That's what we're talking about here. So, And there's an epigraph by Elizabeth Alexander. I know there's something better down the road. One river, one boat. Because our history is a knot, we try to unravel while others try to tighten it. We tire easily and fray the cords that bind us. The cord is a slow-moving river, spiraling across the land in a succession of S's, splintering near the sea. Picture us all crowded onto a boat at the last bend in the river. Watch children stepping off the school bus, parents late for work, grandparents fishing for favorite memories, teachers tapping their desks with red pens, firemen suiting up to save us, Nurses making rounds, baristas grinding coffee beans, dock workers unloading apartment-sized containers of computers and toys from factories across the sea. Every morning, a different veteran stands at the base of the bridge with a cardboard sign with misspelled words and an empty cup. In fields at daybreak, rows of migrant farm workers standing on ladders break open iced peach blossoms, their breath rising and resting above the frozen fields like clouds. A john boat drifts down the river. Inside, a small boy lies on his back, hands laced behind his head. He watches stars fade from the sky and dreams. Consider the prophet John calling us from the edge of the wilderness to name the harm that has been done, to make it plain, and enter the river and rise. It is not about asking for forgiveness. It is not about bowing our heads in shame, because it all begins and ends here, while workers unearth trenches at Gadsden's Wharf, where a hundred thousand Africans were imprisoned within brick walls awaiting auction, death, or worse where the dead were thrown into the water and the river, clogged with corpses, has kept centuries of silence. It is time to gather at the edge of the sea and toss wreaths into this watery grave. And it is time to praise the judge who cleared George Stinney's name 70 years after the fact. We honor him. We pray. Here, where the Confederate flag flew beside the State House haunted by our past, conflicted about the future, at the heart of it. We are at war with ourselves, huddled together on this boat, handed down to us, stuck at the last bend of a wide river, splintering near the sea. So powerful. Yeah, absolutely. When I read it out of state, I have to, they don't know who George Stinney, we know, was, and to explain that. But that, you know, that all happened, la- I think it was last December, the judge cleared, you know. Will you, for our listeners, will you share? Well, he was the youngest person ever executed in the United States, and he was 14, and um, I can't remember the, the little town, but he, he and his brother were the last two people to see these two little girls, sisters, who were killed. Mm. And there really, you know, was no evidence, and, and you know, he was a scapegoat. I mean, they just needed someone to blame. He was a black kid. They killed him. I mean, it's not that complicated, uh, you know, and it was horrific. I mean, there was no evidence that they mm. did it. And he was so small that they had to use, there's pictures, they had to put him on phone books to mm. put him in the electric chair. Oh, and um, the judge who cleared his name was in Hilton Head, not originally from South Carolina. Um, 
And of course, the family of these murdered girls wanted to rest with that information and that they'd been caught. And, you know, um, but, you know, that's the way things used to happen. And if you had no resources and, um, you know, it still happens it still to some has, extent. Yeah. Sure. I mean, we talked about it a little <clears throat> bit with Kara Lee on the last episode when she talked about Brian Stevenson and, and his, uh, his mission to shine a light on those sort of injustices. Yeah. I mean, you know, I have three sons and they, they understood, you know, they walk out the door, they have a very different reality than their, yeah. their, the, they're friends who are African-American. Um, the law looks at them differently. We all know that now. Um, right. If you didn't before, <laughs> you know. But uh, anyway, it's a really sad story, and I hope there's some redemption in the fact that, that they, this judge cleared his name. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting in, in, in that I find that uh, it's so such a challenge, I imagine, particularly for you to place a value on exactly what it is that you do. And we've talked mm-hmm. about this before. Um, and And... It's got to be. Um, it's it's a it's a bit of a dichotomy between these two ideas. Where uh, because of that aspect, I find that there's a certain purity to what you do yeah. that doesn't that removes the weight, so you can, you're free to do it. And I'm sure it's a challenge at, yeah. as a as a career choice, but as a way to inform people in a very pure form I find particularly like when you read that poem it's it, it really lands well, well you you hit the nail on the head one of my best friends Carol Ann Davis who helped we started Lila this writing organization here mm-hmm. and she now lives in Connecticut and teaches there but she she always says that you know that the because there's no it's poetry is not quantifiable yeah there's no value on the marketplace so for the difficulty in that if you are a poet uh, for all that difficulty on the other hand that fifteen hundred dollar stipend doesn't yeah which really go I for, haven't gotten which, which for ended. many years right. um, but you know there it in terms of an art form there's this purity there's so much going on in it um, most good poets figure it out I mean I write other mm-hmm. books I get paid to write children's books and nonfiction books and I teach and you know it it all kind of feeds into it. Uh, but it does it does um, take all that pressure off, and that's why there's so many fascinating things going on in poetry. I mean, American poetry is alive and well. Yeah, you yeah, know, um, and it, it tends to go political often. I find you know a lot of the uh, and maybe it's just because of the the this idea of shining a light on. Well, uh, I think if you look at who you know the National Book Award winners this year, and then a lot of the books that have done really well. Um, you know, you look at South Carolina, two South Carolina poets have won the National Book Award recently, Nikki Finney okay. and uh, Terrence Hayes, and he was just a runner-up for last year. Um, I think uh, there's, um, you know, I guess what I would say, you can write beautifully, you can have just perfect craft, which I think was really celebrated in the T.S. Eliot and all these, you know, but if there's nothing to write about, it's not going to resonate with people in the same, you know. Mm. So I think that right now, you know, our new poet laureate is was son of a Mexican migrant farm worker. Uh, he wrote a poem about Charleston, by the way. Mm. Uh, you know, you've got this kind of, these incredibly talented writers who come with a subject matter. Um, and a puzzle, which, you know, a good poem is always like an argument. And um, it's Hmm. really exciting to see that happening. Um, Yeah. You know. So, I mean, at what point, I mean, we're getting into these sort of issues of social equality and and justice and these things. And I I did note, uh, do some research, and then you had a job as a refugee resettlement worker years ago. Yes. I have a lot to say about that. And I did find that, that that was... 
uh, that there's a, there's a really strong emphasis on that in a lot of your writing, mm-hmm. and and uh, um, and you know where does that come from? And uh, uh, well, I think I, I think if you're creative, you're em- you, there's a kind of empathy you have. Mm-hmm. Um, I never divided the two. I mean, when I was in graduate school, I was working at Church World Service, resettling refugees, and I was working it in the Amnesty Office, and you know, so for me, it's kind of to go hand in hand. hand. Yeah. yeah. And um, then, you know, you there's this certainly a a, a line in poetry of, of writers who, who really feel like I've got to speak for the people who can't speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a responsibility mm-hmm. that, and, and I think that kind of pulls through all my writing. You know, I write a lot of personal stuff too, but, um, you know, not everybody has that same sensibility or interest. Right. Um, you know, where does that come from? It's always been there. It's always been there. Even when I was a little kid. And yeah. um, it's, you know, just what the way I'm made. I'm not better or worse than anybody. Actually, where it comes from is my, my um, the way I practice my faith, I would say. I, I okay. really was a very religious kid, was not raised, raised in a religious household. Um, in fact, I was baptized Episcopalian, and I grew up in a town that was really Jewish and Catholic. I didn't really know Protestants. I moved to South Carolina. They're all over the place here. But um, I really the the this, this, the Christian story of of you know the, my vision of the of of Christ and the work that he did is is really about caring for the, the people who no one else cares about. And you know I love to point out to people, <clears throat> you know, he was tortured to death. You yeah. know, and. Um, People sort of only focus on the the other part of the story, um, but there's a reason. I mean, if, yeah. if you really believe that, why did that have to happen that way? You know, so these issues go way back and, and are really kind of deep in me. And that's a big subject, mm-hmm. but and this brings it brings us forward to the present time when you're this book you're reading the the cross and the lynching tree. Yeah, I love that. That's, that's a book that, that like, oh my gosh, here's someone who thinks just like me. Oh, is that right? Yeah. yeah. Do you yeah. know him? Well, I just met just him, reading. Jeremy and <laughs> Jeremy Rivers. And, <laughs> Rutledge, thank you. Um, they had asked him to come like a year ago before any of the oh, wow. stuff happened okay. here. You know, I don't okay. like to say stuff, whatever. You know, Walter Scott and then the horrible the church massacre. Yeah. And um, how timely for him to come because, of course, he he's really the founder of Black Liberation Theology and really talks about the cross and the lynching tree being so similar and you really yeah. have to understand that connection and so that book's really well, important Well, as you pointed out, you know, it was, it, Christ was tortured. Right, on a piece of wood that was made yeah. out of a tree and, you know, it's, it never, I never understood the way the cross is sort of sanitized. Uh, um, yeah. You know, like, why aren't we talking? He was a political prisoner. Yeah. Like, I, so for me, it really goes back to that and I, um, it's you know so deep inside of me. G- given all the tragic events that we've experienced in our community over the past year, you, I, it's interesting when we ask our guests to talk about Charleston as a person. Um, how would you describe Charleston? Uh, and perhaps you could share the story of Manacles. Um, if, in terms of Charleston, you said uh, I'll, yeah, I was going to say quote. No, I have it. Charleston yeah. is a very well dressed, attractive person who is putting on a show. Beneath the surface, there's turmoil. And, and you quite literally, as we were talking about Sullivan's Island and what exists on the exterior in this beautiful, pristine, um, calm setting, and yet underneath the story of the manacles and, and your... 
Well, and I, th- I think that's part of what's starting to change. I think the 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 the, the history of slavery and and and, and its ties to the city. Um, it's even since you've been here. I mean, you you mm-hmm. it's more overt in terms of how we talk about it, but. It's yeah. still there, uh, you know. Um, I think Joe Darby calls it Confederate Disneyland. Well, yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, um, it was interesting when Pharrell was here with Soledad O'Brien, and I don't know if you watched any of that or were around, but, you know, he said, really? We're on a parking lot that was a morgue for sla-? Like, people are getting their pictures taken in front of the slave quarters? Like, I don't understand this place. Mm. And, um, you know, we're in the middle of figuring that out. It's really a muddle, you know? Yeah, it feels um, that way. But it feels like it's, it's, it's starting to, to b- come to the surface, which, yeah. is, which is really healthy. It's, it's bubbling. And I think that you've got this physically, you know, the landscape is beautiful. Yeah. You've got this, you know, the architecture is beautiful. And this mayor who's really made sure that we keep our city beautiful, despite development. Um, and yet, how did you get these beautiful mansions and all? You know, when I teach African-American yeah. literature, I t- we walk down to the Battery. I said, gee, you could have a house like this if you didn't pay anyone to work for you. You know, and they've never thought about it that yeah. way, no matter who they are or what their background is. So, you know, it, it's just kind of... Um, it, it, it's this par- great paradox about yeah. Charleston, and I think it has a lot to do with uh, what makes up this place. And, and we all celebrate and love it, but it's like yeah. a, there's a, there is this unhealed wound, and you, if you kind of run around it and don't work on that, it's it's there. It's just kind of linger. We've, ta- we've yeah. talked yeah. a lot about that with the yeah. guests that sort of it originated here, and, and yeah, it seems like, like it's being called to heal here. Well, well, and I think now that's what's next for us, and it's going to be interesting. I mean, you know, you, you, many people talk about, well, the flag's down, but but so what? Uh, you know. Um, but that's huge. It yeah. really is. No, I mean, symbolically, but, for, you know, like uh, my touchstone is Burke High School because I, uh-huh. I helped, you know, we had a poetry program there. And until that one high school on the peninsula is the best high school in Charleston County. We got a lot of work to do. We got a lot of work Most to do. Most people don't even know where it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, go down to Chicora Cherokee. Right. And, oh yeah. And, and I mean, we've been the in these school schools, there. and yeah. you know, and um, you know, we got a ways to go. And. Um, but it's, I feel like it's out in the open in a way that's different. In a way, than it used and to I be, think that's you know? the good. Right. One of the good things that's happening. Yeah. Lots of people working really hard. Yeah. And and you know, you feel like you're part of. The ch- of, of, of a good change here. Yeah, and, and it's opening uh, up different conversations and different opportunities. Yeah. Like you mentioned this new thing that you're about to, you're leaping into as we speak, which I love that you referred to it as that. This, uh, uh, this book with uh, Bernie Powers. Bernie Powers and Herb Fraser. And Herb Fraser. T- tell us about that. Yeah, it's, um, it's called We Are Charleston, uh-huh. uh, Tragedy and Triumph at, at Emmanuel Church. And um, yeah, we have two, well, it's due two weeks from... Yesterday, oh my gosh! <laughs> Coming out June fifteenth. I want you to all order it on Amazon. No, you got it. Um, I also say that I'll get in trouble. Uh, but um, yeah, we—it's kind of a long story how this happened. I was working with an agent who's got more integrity, I think, than anyone <laughs> who does that in publishing. Jeff Kleinman at Folio, and I was supposed to be handing in a book about the, the program I used to do at Roper Hospital. Oh, okay. And then I wrote this poem, um, "Holy City." Okay. Right after the church shooting for the newspaper, they asked for that poem, and and um, that's another story. But uh, anyway, one thing led to another, and it was like, wow, could could there be a book about this? And and I called Herb Fraser, 
who grew up in Emmanuel Church, and I didn't really know that. I mean, I associated hmm. him with our friend Jack McRae. Yeah. Uh, but that. he grew up in Ansonboro when it really was Ansonboro, you know. And um, he had said he woke up that morning. His dad had died in December of this year. And he woke up, you know, he was a journalist for the Post and Courier for 18 years. And he thought, I've got to write a book about that. So hmm. he was... Okay, that's it, yes. And then during the process, we realized a lot of it, you can't really talk about it without talking about the history, and Bernie Powers was writing a history of the AME Church and really wasn't the expert, and I barely knew him, but I'm like, yeah, sure, let's, let's just do let's it. Do this. Yeah. And it really was like jumping off, a, holding hands and jumping off a cliff with our eyes closed. Um, and but you say you feel like you've got Jack McRae along for the ride. He is mm, my, he is getting such a kick out of this. <laughs> oh, and I love it. Because you know what? The, the, when when the, the massacre happened at that church, it, I felt like it was desecrating my memory of Jack McRae's Yeah, we all, you know, I think so many of us, that's our first association. Yeah, because it was such a joyous occasion. I mean, sad, of course, because, you know, but, but it was really powerful and celebratory. Yeah, you know, it was yeah. a jazz parade. Still picture Harold with his white gloves on. Oh, my goodness, there. yeah. And, um, you know, so I think we a lot of us in the arts made that association, but yeah. um, it's it's been amazing. You know, I think I think one of the things we felt with was that you know we live here and we lived through this, and we had a different title and we changed it to We Are Charleston. And mm. the more time goes on, and the more that's coming out, the more uh, perfect that title seems. Yeah, and um, you know, to say, it certainly talks about what happened, but it's really about what got us there. Yeah, and um, well, you know, there's 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 two things that I wanted to talk about with that. One is one of your favorite quotes you mentioned, which this kind of circles back to an earlier conversation, and you say, "We must love one another or die." I and love that W. H. Auden, great poet. Yeah, I love and it, that and it, quote. It, it's 1939. Short it's and sweet. Time, yeah, right? that, well, yeah. that's a very interesting poem. And, yeah. and, and to say that that poem was another poem that circulated a lot um, after 9 11. Oh, okay. And he was really envisioning the start of World War II. You know, right. like he could see it coming. But he has but those these, sort of words are timeless. I mean, right. uh, it's, it, it, it's, but it sort of all comes down to that. Like, yeah. what else are we going to do, man? <laughs> so, I mean, and, and on those lines, you know, I'm thinking about somebody who inspires you, Reverend Anthony Thompson, and, and you oh, say... Oh, man, that guy. I just... I am the president of that fan club. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing man. And, you know, he's a minister. He has a little church over on... Is it Bull or Pit? I forget. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, um, I really admire him. And... Um, His wife was shot in the, in the shootings. Yes, yeah. and he you know, spoke at the bond hearing with no intention of speaking any, and he spoke in these very calm mm. sentences of any talked to, you know, suggested that, um, this young man repent. And I mean, I think he, he really, uh, I mean, I don't want to talk about it too much. You have to buy the book, but, um, he's really a man of God. And he's somebody who, when you spend time with him, he heals you. Mm. Um, mm. I think he's very courageous and very wise. And, um, you know, one of the wonderful things about writing this book is the relationships, mm. yeah, the people sure. I've met, um, some it's extraordinary people. But I write, you know, I really, really admire him. I like him very much. And I just don't think you meet, he's like, the, look, the people who were in that room were the, the best of us. You know, we all wouldn't 
we all like to have a spiritual practice that after work on a Wednesday, whatever you believe, you know, you, you do that. And, yeah. you know, their, their lives were built around service. I mean, none of them were, you know, business people. I'm not saying there's anything against business people, but they all were coaches, mm-hmm. ministers, teachers, like pu- nurses, yeah. you know, and, and um, you know, he's that kind of person. And, and just we're lucky to be able to have him among us. So. Yeah, and he speaks at that at the bond hearing. He was talking about forgiveness and 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 redemption, which right. is which is pretty powerful stuff at that moment. Yeah, an amazing man, amazing man. Yep. Thank you. Uh, what a wonderful hour. To sure, spend this with is you. fun. And uh, we're gonna lead out with uh, another redemption song by one of our all of our favorites, Bob Marley. Yeah, thanks for being here, Marjorie. Oh, we appreciate you. This it. This is great. I can't wait to, to see seeing. how you put it all together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right. We'll let you know. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. And ships minutes after they took I from the bottomless pit, but my hand was made strong by the end of the Almighty. We forward in this generation triumphantly. Won't you help to sing These songs of freedom Cause all I ever have Redemption songs Redemption songs Emancipate yourselves from mental slavery None but ourselves can free our minds have no fear for atomic energy Cause none of them can stop the time How long shall they kill our prophets While we stand aside and look Some say it's just a part of it We've got to fulfill the book Won't you help to sing songs of freedom cause all I ever have redemption songs redemption songs redemption songs From mental slavery None but ourselves Can free our mind Oh, have no fear For atomic energy Cause none of them Can stop at the time How long shall They kill our prophets While we stand Aside and look Yes, some say It's just a part of it We've got to Fulfill the book 
Won't you hear to sing These songs of freedom This all I ever had Redemption songs All I ever had Redemption songs These songs of freedom Songs of freedom Great song from a, an all-time great poet, Bob Marley. Absolutely. We had another beautiful poet here today, Marjorie Wentworth. Wow, what an incredible energy, voice. Lots going on in there. Yeah, absolutely. And she's such an interesting woman and, and uh, small and yet huge at the same time. She's yeah. a really strong woman and, and a lot of great energy. Yeah, really, really enjoyed that. I, uh, I was thinking about just, you know, a poet and, and what that meant to me now that we've had the opportunity to interview two poets, uh, both Marcus and uh, Marcus Amaker and Marjorie Wentworth. And uh, it's just the highest honor as, as I think about that role, you know, one that uh, lives with authenticity, truth, bearing witness, uh, having a voice, and, uh, and she carries that badge so well. She uh, does. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's a certain amount of courage that that, that, that Absolutely. Entails. Yeah. Yeah. Fierce, you know. I mean, the, the poem she wrote that wasn't allowed, how ironic is that, that it, the governor's office took that out of the inaugural. Yeah, but it ended one, up being a real boon. One river, one boat. I mean, yeah. how, how, uh, how powerful that poem is. And as you and I talked about, like, being able to digest poetry really takes a certain space. And when I've read right. poetry and sort of read through a verse, paused, read through it again, like it just gives you an opportunity to really let it in. Yeah, I think as you mentioned, you, you can taste it and then you can, then you can actually digest it right. you know, if you can get a couple of reads in. So, I mean, if anybody listening wants to get more information on Marjorie Wentworth, you can just go to marjoriewentworth.net and there's all kinds of information there on her website. Um, and as far as a call to adventure goes, I think it's great because, um, as one of her favorite uh, people says, Billy Collins says, each poem is a little journey into the unknown. And so it, each one is a call to adventure. So and, true. And I love that. So true. Um, also, just wanted to say thank you to Ohm Radio for making this all possible. Uh, you know, a tremendous amount of effort to get this organization up and running. Uh, it's commercially free entirely. Uh, it's supported by you, the listeners. And so... Any of you out there who can afford to contribute a dollar, five, ten, or a hundred, um, please, uh, you know, make a donation. OhmRadio963.org is where you find more information. Uh, thanks for making it all possible. And uh, thanks again to our listeners for spending an hour of uh, your time with us. We appreciate it. Cheers. And remember, the road that is distinctly your own has never been traversed. Celebrate the path that is your call to adventure. This show is brought to you by Objectivity Squared Wealth Management, helping families strategize, execute, 
monitor and communicate their financial decisions. Learn more at objectivitysquared.com.